When I launched the Resilient Journey podcast, I knew I wanted to speak with industry leaders about important topics facing the resilience world. What I didn't know was just how much A-game my guests were going to bring to the table. Hello everyone and welcome to a special year-end edition of the Resilient Journey podcast sponsored by ClearRisk. I'm your host, Mark Hoffman. Well, we've completed 18 episodes of the podcast so far, and to celebrate the holidays and the coming new year, I thought I'd share some of my favorite segments from our most popular episodes. Today we're going to hear from nine guests who shared a shiny nugget of pure gold as we spoke about everything from cybersecurity to diversity and mental health. Let's recap the best of 2021 right after we hear this from ClearRisk. Navigating changes in the risk landscape can be daunting without access to the right tools. ClearRisk's centralized risk management solution streamlines the process of data collection and analysis, helping customers make impactful decisions and focus on big picture initiatives. ClearRisk provides a highly configurable, easy to use solution that gives our customers the confidence to inform decision-making and proactively optimize risk in their organizations. Effective risk management begins with data you can trust. Learn more at clearrisk.com. I want to start this year-end recap right where I began the podcast. My first guest was senior insurance broker and risk advisor and cyber practice leader for Marsh, Caitlin Upchurch, and I asked her about paying ransom and other costs associated with a cyber attack. Well, the cyber world is just rocking right now. I mean, ransomware is off the charts and you can't go more than a few days without news of another major attack. Is the ransom payment the biggest part of the claim or are all of these other remediation factors a bigger part? Good question. So that is, I think, one of the myths is that the ransom payment could be the biggest piece of the claim. And we've seen some of the headlines of some major, major, you know, tens of millions of dollars for ransom payments and the demand. So yes, there are those stories. Um, But at least from what I personally have seen with my clients over the last couple of years, the ransom payment, you know, may start out a little bit high, but then there's a negotiation process and it goes down. But again, think about, think about, um, you know, I live in Texas, so there's been some major hurricane events down here. Think about a hurricane, the, all the things that are going on after the storm hits and when the storm is happening, that's the same uh, analogy to a ransomware event. So you get this big, you get this payment, but while you're trying to negotiate this payment, there's this huge distraction within the organization. Mm. You know, maybe some systems aren't working, maybe data is locked up. um, Maybe the C-suite is, is tied up and can't, you know, focus on a new, a new business project. So the sort of distraction costs and the remediation costs end up being significantly more in most cases, at least for small to medium enterprises, um, than the ransom payment itself. So whether or not you pay the ransom is, is maybe not the biggest drop in the bucket in terms of what your overall cost may be for a ransomware attack, noting also that there's a stat that the average Um, downtime from a ransomware event has now exceeded three weeks for the average organization. And you can hear more from my interview with Caitlin Upchurch in episode one of The Resilient Journey. After we finished a four-part series on cyber, I wanted to address a topic that a lot of people were asking me about. 
How do we as resilience professionals demonstrate value to our organization? Well, where else would I start other than industry icon James Green? And this is from episode five. Well, as consultants, and we both have a bit of a consulting background, you and I know the value of building up our reputation, gaining momentum, building on small wins, and kind of increasing our influence, whether it's in a market or with a customer, or in the case of someone who works for an organization with their employer. It's really not that different working in an organization. Those things are still important. So talk about how a professional can leverage even small wins to further their influence within an organization. Sure thing. So the first thing I want to go back to is just like you and I discussed the definition of value, who's defining success? Is it you? Is it your boss? Is it the business? Because those are all three very different answers for success. And you should know all three of those, because there's going to be things that are important to the business that your boss doesn't care about and vice versa. So the first thing for me is to really fine tune what is the definition of success in those different groups. And, you know, one thing I always ask myself is that definition of success, that small win that you were speaking about, does it actually help a department? You know, creating a risk register is not a win. Updating a BIA is not a win in, in, in terms of it's too abstract. So I always want people to go back to, did you actually help a department? More importantly, how did you help people? Because if you're not helping people, I hate to say it, but honestly, no one's really going to care. So now I'm going to get you to put your your coaching hat on and talk specifically to someone who might be struggling. So we know some organizations, look, they focus on being resilient because it's the right thing to do, but some are just interested in checking off a box for compliance purposes. And I think it's our colleagues who work in this type of an organization who are most likely going to struggle demonstrating value. So what do you recommend to someone who might be living through you know, that nightmare right now, what advice would you give? So the first piece of advice I'm going to give, I guarantee your audience isn't going to like, so I apologize, but get a new job. And um, I know that sounds strange, but, but hear me out. There are, are people who are um, very happy and very comfortable with the status quo and running a check the box program. There are other people who are not. And if you're in that latter category and that's where your company is, you should really consider leaving. This is the hottest job market I've seen in my lifetime with, you know, what Wall Street Journal and all these um, periodicals are calling the great resignation. 55% of white collar workers in the United States are looking at other jobs. There are a ton of BC and resilience jobs out there right now. Well, speaking of the job market, I wrapped up my series on articulating value with an episode that basically said, look, your best option might be to find another job. My guest in episode eight was Sean Watson. Sean is the managing director of risk, resilience, and cyber at Anderson Steinberg. He's a recruiter. And I asked him about the job market in our industry. Are you seeing a lot of activity? We are uh, definitely seeing a lot of people have kind of reevaluated their 
life priorities. Um, so if they were having a long commute, they realized, you know what, it's not worth it anymore to have that kind of commute. So if companies are not willing to allow them to work remotely, then someone else will. Um, and so they're going to start making changes there. I think a lot of people uh, realize how undervalued they may have been in certain organizations. And so they are looking at places that are going to really value resilience. Um, and when we think back, you've been in this industry for a long time. People have always kind of resiliency was kind of a, a back office function that didn't really have the executive viewpoint or executive um, site at times. And now this has really caused it to really elevate to the board of director level where they're asking what's going on with, with resilience. So companies that um, have not invested in it, have not shown the value, people are going to be looking to leave and make some changes where they can feel valued. We've been encouraging risk and resilience professionals to expand their knowledge into some complementary areas to increase their value. What areas are hot right now and where would you recommend people focus their attention if they're going to try to, to learn to pick up some new skills? Well, obviously, the operational resilience is a big deal. Uh, the regulator is looking at that now. Um, so that's going to be an interesting area for a lot of folks to really transition their skill set if they were a BCM professional, um, I would tell folks BCM is one leg of or one pillar of your overall resilience program. So you're able to expand and to learn the crisis management piece of it. Maybe learn some of the technology um, or that's going to be help out, help you out. Um, cyber is a big deal these days. So folks who have a business mind, but they can also kind of talk the cyber talk and understand. I mean, not saying you have to be a pen tester or something like that, but someone who can be that bridge between the business and the technology, the cyber folks, is a is a critical role these days because all these all these folks have to talk. My next series was on crisis communications. In episode twelve, I interviewed Diane Chase from Chase Media in North Carolina, and we talked about the importance of developing good communication skills. And I learned something that I could be doing better in my own communications plans. This is these good communications doesn't just happen accidentally. No, absolutely not. And it is a skill that can be learned and it has to be learned, but it has to be practiced. And as I always say, nothing successful ever came from poor communication. I mean, communication is at the heart of anything successful, anything good that we can do in business or society comes from good communication, authentic communication. One of the things that I've put in, and feel free to tell me I'm wrong, because I, I, I love it when I learn stuff. One of the things that I put in the uh, communication strategies for companies when they're responding to a cyber attack mm -hmm. is a statement that says, as they put out their statement, we are the we have become the victim or we are the victim of a cyber attack. Am I wrong to suggest that my client is a victim when when they've been hit by a cyber attack? Would you recommend against what I'm doing? Well, in my view, Mark, I, I see, you know, there's it's an evolutionary process, if you will, communicating through a cyber attack, especially. But leading your communication with the fact that the company is the victim to me, isn't as uh, successful in engaging your stakeholders and, and keeping them with you before they become flamethrowers and, you know, or torching the internet about you. 
lead with the fact that those people whose information has been compromised are the victims. And you can build your company story around that. And, and the goal really is don't let the media be the vindicator. The company is the vindicator. So the company to, to step in as the role of vindicator and not victim. In episode 10, I spoke with Brad Phillips, CEO of the Throughline Group in New York City, about preparing for a media interview. I work with a lot of small and medium-sized companies, like 200, 300 people. I'd say more than half of the time, the CEO is the company spokesperson. Is that the right approach? Or should they have maybe somebody like a SVP of corporate affairs or corporate comms as the spokesperson and then save the CEO in case they need to, you know, make that call to the bullpen and bring someone in if the situation escalates? What's the right approach there for that size company? Yeah, I think the way you're thinking about it is very similar to the way we think about it. Um, I, I think if you send the CEO out and the public doesn't perceive the crisis as being as large as you do, suddenly you sending the CEO out sends a message. This is a big deal. Uh, and conversely, if you send out the SVP for a, a massive corporate crisis that the public would expect the chief executive to be speaking about, that could communicate this idea that you don't really care, you don't get it. Um, so I think there's a lot of factors that go into when should you go to the CEO, when should you go to somebody who's still senior, but maybe not the top executive. I think another factor is how good are they on TV? How good are they as a communicator? I mean, some chief executives that I've worked with are really brilliant in many ways as a business leader, but they don't necessarily come across with a lot of empathy. They may feel empathy, they may feel all the right things, but there's just something about their style that doesn't necessarily convince other people of that, at least not immediately. Uh, sometimes people have to get to know them a little bit and they start to see those other qualities, but they don't lead with them. So then even in a big crisis, is that the person I want to send out there? Maybe you do want to go out with someone more junior, even if there's some risk in being perceived like you don't get it or, or you're not setting out the, the big chief first. If that person is going to send the right message through their delivery, their, their empathy, their sense of, I get it and I'm capable of doing something about it. So I think all of those factors go into the soup of deciding who should I put out onto the front lines. I couldn't do a series on crisis communications without speaking with my pal, Molly McPherson. We talked about her book, Indestructible, Reclaim Control and Respond with Confidence in a Media Crisis, and I asked her about her three-step approach to crisis communications. The three steps, you know, are easy and anyone can identify it. When you identify a successful leader or person or brand who has gotten through a crisis, it's typically they are following these steps. So my indestructible PR response, how I see it is this. Step one is owning it. You have to be accountable for what happened. It's all the A's. It's accountability. It's acceptance. It's acknowledging. It's apologizing. It's admitting. It's perhaps being ashamed if something had happened. Right away out of the gate, if it's a media statement, something that's on Twitter or it's in a television interview, right out the gate, we want to hear that you're accepting responsibility for what happened. The second step is to explain it. It allows you to add the context to what happened. You can explain why it happened, what the circumstances were. You're giving the background to explain how you ended up in that position. 
the last step, step three, is promise it. We're speaking to the plans now. We're moving forward. What are you going to promise to do? What are the plans that you're going to make to make sure that this doesn't happen again? When they follow those three steps in that order, that person, brand, entity will be able to move forward, get through that crisis. And as I stated earlier, more likely they will improve their brand coming out of it. Where the mistake is often made that I see happen all the time is the stepping over of step one. When people react to a crisis, when it's very personal, when they're winging it even, they start with step two and they just start to explain what happened. Well, this is the reason why. And when you start with two, more likely people are going to blame or dodge. They're not going to take accountability when you're explaining why something happened. So you're creating this narrative that you're trying to dodge the crisis and it never works. Near the end of the year, I had the privilege, and I use that word intentionally, to do a series on diversity. It started with a two-part interview with Vince Davis. Vince is a long-standing and distinguished member of the emergency management world, and I asked him about an article he wrote on racial inequity in our industry. Well, uh, you know, Mark, I, 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 a lot of where I was coming from was actually born when I did that article of, a, uh, of an all-hands meeting that we had when I got here to Feeding America. Uh, Right after the George Floyd incident, as a lot of companies and organizations did, our CEO uh, called an all-hands meeting of all of our employees at the national office and just said, everybody, take this time to breathe a little bit and just talk about how you're feeling. Having just started at Feeding America at that time, I was not going to say anything. I had no intention of saying a word. But did you speak up? I did speak up, and, and I spoke from the heart. And what I said was essentially this. I said that after, you know, growing up during the apex of the civil, the modern civil rights movement, I was a sophomore in high school when Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated okay. uh, and seeing literally America in flames uh, over the, the, the anger and the frustration, not over the killing of Martin Luther King, but over the all the heaping injustices that had happened up to that point. I said, I'm tired. I'm literally tired. I can't tell you how tired I am. Uh, I never thought in a million years you could have never told me as a 16-year-old that 50-plus years later that I would be having these same conversations with my grandsons and my granddaughters about race. You never could have told me that. And so I basically said, I'm tired. I'm tired of talking about race, and I'm tired of thinking about race, and I'm tired of dealing with uh, racial injustice in ways that only a person of color who has had to deal with it can understand. Uh, what I did say in that meeting was that when I, when you back out of your driveway, if you are a white person in America, your name is Bob or Sue or Jane or, or, or John or whatever, you get to be that person. When I back out of my driveway, I'm black. That comment, when I back out of the driveway, I'm black, was brilliant. From there, I asked Vince about his thoughts around eradicating racism. So one of the, the secrets here has got to be that when you see it, like you talked about, have an honest self-dialogue. When you see it, work on it. Honestly work to fix it. Work to fix it. Call it out. Uh, sit down and have a conversation with that person. Go, Joe, uh, 
uh, you know, Sam, I, I respect you a lot. I like you. I think you're a great person. But what you said in there was very offensive. And yeah. I just I want you to understand why it was offensive. And I also want you to, and if he says or she says, well, Vince, nobody said anything. You know why? Well, let me explain this to you. And again, this is where the anti-racist comes in. They're afraid to say anything. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not afraid. I'm past afraid. Okay. And then but, but goes back there was to you a talk t- about where we are right. in our careers. We're where both- we are in our career. Yeah. Yep. There was a time in my career where I could not have said any of the stuff I'm talking to you about ever mm-hmm. openly. Never. It would have been, it would have been a death sentence for my career. It would have put me into a category of being a troublemaker or being, you know, some kind of crazy radical. And it would have, you know, it would have given people the ammunition that they needed to further discriminate against me. And now that I'm in the I don't care mode, I feel an obligation not to speak for black people because let's let's stop that too. Nobody gets to speak for anybody else. Everybody has to live with their own unique experiences. Mm -hmm. So not to speak for, but to be a voice for those people who are voiceless for still all the wrong reasons. I would encourage you to catch episodes 13 and 14 to hear my full interview with Vince Davis. We continue the conversation on diversity by speaking about gender pay gaps and the lack of women in leadership roles when Rita Singh joined the podcast in episode 15. So it's not enough to get women into the industry. We're all better served to have women as leaders in the industry. So what kind of progress are we making there? I love this and I'm so glad you asked this question because Mark the advancement of women has been a focus for business for over 25 years longer than that you know the ratio of women in top jobs uh, has virtually remained unchanged for the last 10 years that is shocking Mm. so what actually have we done it seems like nothing you know the going back to the BCI's compensation survey um, you know 35% of women compared to men are still not at the top you know there's still a lot more men doing this and the 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 thing is the the kind of progress we're making is so slow and idealistic it's about culture because it's so deep rooted that it's difficult to change and let's face it jobs really are still not designed that way because opportunities in terms of the way it works and perceived is still more attractive to men and what I mean by that is the way job adverts are written the expectations the biases we have like oh if a woman takes on a uh, a senior role she's going to go off and have kids blah 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 like why does that matter where, where is the flexibility designed into the job to allow for this you know essentially I feel like the human system System is kind of broken uh, because pe- people should be appointed on merit and then decide um, and give women like the, st- the the chance to still be in those top positions. But actually, we're not really doing enough of that. We're starting to because you know organizations are looking at this. They're putting women um, like having mentoring, you know, having that allies, putting them on courses webinars etc but mark that's not enough putting someone on a five-day course on how to be in a leadership and then checking a box and then not doing anything to follow up isn't the solution to help you know get women more women leaders in the industry if you're not giving 
them the opportunities in the correct way because it's business politics right it's the culture normally you'll just hire someone because you know oh they're good rather than actually putting the job advert out and getting that diverse pool of candidates because money in business there is money in diversity and in thought rather than like just being mediocre and hiring whoever looks like you and sounds like you because it's easy and you literally can't be bothered. Be sure to catch the entire series on diversity as I also spoke with Lisa Jones and Andreas Bryant from the Resilience Think Tank about how to fight bias in the workplace. That's episode 16. We wrapped up the year by doing another two-part episode, this time with Luke Bird. Luke is a global award-winning continuity and resilience professional, and he's global board director for the BCI. But he's also someone who recently experienced a mental health crisis after the sudden and unexpected loss of a sibling. Luke openly shared his deeply personal story about his loss and how it affected him emotionally. In part two of the interview, he talked about the process he went through in getting the help he needed. So coming out of the mental health struggles, and I don't want to gloss over this part, but probably one of the biggest things that you did was you sought help. And and I congratulate you for that. But you went to therapy and you told me that therapy was harder than you expected it to be. How so? Oh, wow. Yeah, this was, (laughs) it sounds so stupid to say out loud. Uh, And I had no idea, having never experienced therapy before, that it, I kind of, I kind of felt like it would be just like the movies, right? I thought I'd lie on a couch. I thought I'd talk about my childhood, and then the the, the shrink would say something profound, and then I'd walk out feeling better, and that would be the end of it. Totally not the case at all. Therapy, in my experience of therapy, at least, it was about difficult conversations about difficult and uncomfortable thoughts and in a very unusual and vulnerable time for me it was for those that haven't gone through therapy I've tried to explain it to them what it was actually like and I compare it to kind of going to a gym mm. I was like if, if I do high intensity workouts three times a week for three months and then I do absolutely nothing for three months after that could I go back to the gym and still work at the level that I did at the end of the first three months like, absolutely not. I was like, mental health takes so much hard work and commitment to maintain as, as well as it does from a physical standpoint. It's, um, that was something that really was lost on me at the very beginning. You really, if you want to get the best out of your experience with therapy, you really have to put a shift in and you really have to work through some difficult situations and conversations. Now, I want to explicitly call out something that you said when we spoke before, and I think it's potentially the most important thing that you've ever mentioned. And you have a lot of nuggets in here, but I really want to call this one out. You said that you needed to, and I'm going to quote you here, find the strength to be weak. I have to tell you, that's one of the most profound things I have ever heard. I love the sentiment of what you're saying here. Walk me through what you mean and what that was like. Yeah, I I get what you I I hear what you're saying about the sentiment. I doesn't quite when I was typing at pace. I don't I don't like the word weak, uh, but for want of a, a a better a better word. But I'll come back to that another time. But yeah, I absolutely it's it seems so obvious now, but so profound to me at the time that 
I discovered that in order to be vulnerable, to be to be weak, as I've I've used, even if it's not the the word I'd like to use, I I actually had to find some serious strength uh, to get through it. So so much strength, in fact. For example, number one, strength to acknowledge what mm. I perceived as a weakness in front of the people that met, meant the most to me. Um, so your family, your friends, you know, and then going into your work colleagues and, and also myself, accepting that something wasn't right and you weren't at your A game. Um, and this was a this was a difficult moment. You know, there's, it's something I'd never done before. And a lot of people around me, they sort of have a certain perspective of me and they expect they would never expect me to come forward. And like some people who know me may listen to this podcast and have no idea that this is the kind of thing that I could go through. And that's part of the reason why I'm doing it. But having to admit that, having the strength to do that, it took strength and courage to do that. Wow, what a first year. I literally could have included guests from every episode. They were all that good. And I can't wait until next year when we continue to speak with industry leaders about how to be more resilient. You hear this every week from me, but I can't say enough good things about Clear Risk. They're a dream to work with, and I respect them more than I could say. Do you know someone who'd like to be a guest on the podcast? Reach out to me. I'd love to hear from you. And we have some exciting things planned for 2022. So join us, won't you, as we continue our resilient journey.